You can go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 98. Psalm 98 is where we're going to look at tonight and next week. Psalm 98, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. These are the words of God. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we confess that apart from the power of your Holy Spirit, we are dulled in our minds and hardened in our hearts. Therefore, we need you. We need you, Father, to sovereignly open our hearts and minds as we open up your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it for the name and fame of King Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus, which is the name above all names that I pray. Amen. Amen. Given the fact that Christmas is hurriedly approaching us, I thought I would spend two weeks looking at Psalm 98 and the hymn written by Isaac Watts in 1719, a hymn that is treasured very much around these quarters, Joy to the World. It is fitting that we would consider this song not only because we like it, and again, we do, but because the song says quite a bit about God. Watts wrote Joy to the World with Psalm 98 in mind and other psalms and other passages. Uh, and we would do well to consider what it is we are singing, why we are singing it, and how all of this relates to this Advent season. The word Advent, if you didn't know, comes from the Latin word Adventus. And that word is actually built on two other Latin words, um, which literally mean to come, to come. Advent marks the coming of Christ, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in history. So to celebrate Advent is to celebrate the birth of Christ, which took place 2,000 years ago. So kids, that's, that's the main point that I want you to know about Christmas. It is important to consider during Advent all of the ramifications of our confession, our creedal confession, which is part of the song itself, the phrase, the Lord is come. The Lord is come. What do we mean when we confess this sort of thing? What does it mean for Christians around the world to hold to the historical belief that God himself took on flesh? When we boldly proclaim that the Lord is come, keyword, 
Just what are we seeing beneath that confession? What are we, what are we really saying behind that? Before we unpack this part of our doctrine, our doctrinal confession, I want to quickly go over Psalm 98 with you, and then we'll kind of go from there. Now, <clears throat> Psalm 98 and its correlating counterpart, Psalm 96, is what we call a psalm of victory. It's a psalm of victory. This psalm of victory celebrates the kingship of God, the lordship of God, and, and his covenantal role in creation as the sovereign governor of all things. We are told in verse 1 to sing to the Lord a new song. And we are told to do this, uh, and, and, and we are actually to do this, we are to, to do what we're told, because God has done, he says, marvelous things. Verse 1. So our singing, when we gather together as the church, whether that's in a formal worship gathering like this, or perhaps in your home when you're singing songs and so on, our singing is directly tied to God's actions in history. Our singing is tied to God's actions in history. So God acts, and we rejoice in that action. God does something marvelous, and we sing boldly about this tremendous undertaking. But what about these marvelous things compel us to sing? And the answer is found in the rest of verse 1. You can see it in the, in the um, second sentence there. His right hand... And his holy arm have worked salvation for him. In other words, God's arm is not too short to save. And the marvelous things that he has done is the display of his salvation. The most notable display of God's salvation and one that echoes down the halls of history is the rescue of Israel from Egypt's hands. So... The victory of God is worthy of our praise, and the reason for it is because God has made known His salvation, and He has revealed His covenant faithfulness, His righteousness, and He has done so, verse 2, in the sight of nations. God didn't, God didn't show His salvation, nor um, did He talk about it. It says that He made it known. That's what the text says. God made it known. And he's done so because of the world being plunged in darkness. So the light of God's victorious salvation has been made known. And because of that, men are without excuse. So in other words, you don't get to, you don't get to look at the scriptures and the history of God's working and, and then remain silent. You are, to, you are compelled to rejoice. You are compelled when you understand God's purposes in history, you are compelled to sing. The psalmist in verse um, 3, he continues. He says, He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The demonstration of God's loving kindness is through the house of Israel. You know this in biblical history. You know, Israel was God's people. They were chosen. God chose Abraham. And, and that was his redemptive plan in history. God's people, Israel, were not left to fend for themselves. No, God, God decidedly acted to redeem them. And, and the text goes on, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now, John Calvin is worth quoting um, at this point. He says, 
about this psalm specifically. He says, quote, The great scope of this psalm is to show that the glory of God would be illustrious, um, illustriously displayed in the spread of the knowledge of his name throughout the world, both from the more ample fulfillment which would be given upon the manifestation of the Savior, to the promises made to the posterity of Abraham, and from the sudden extension of salvation to all parts of the earth, end quote. In other words, let me break that down. This psalm is brought to its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we read something like Psalm 98, we need to be reading it with our Jesus glasses. That's how we're supposed to, to read it. Psalm 98 is about Jesus. Let's keep going. We are told to make a joyful noise to the Lord, and this command extends to all the earth. We are to break forth into joyous song and sing praises. That's verse 4. And we are to do so with instruments. Verses 5 and 6. And we are to do it knowing that it is before the great King, the Lord. Verse 6. Because God is the creator God, and because he owns all of creation, the sea is told to roar, verse 7. And not just the sea, but everything that fills in it. So, so kids, all of the whales and the, the shrimp <laughs> and any other ocean life that you know of in the ocean, the Bible says that they are to proclaim God. They are to sing to God. All of creation, the entirety of the universe, is to praise God. Now, it's interesting that if you look in verse 8, the rivers, who incidentally, they do not have hands, are told to clap their hands. The hills, who do not have a voice, are told to sing for joy. All of creation... All of creation is to join in the concert of praise for God's salvation. And I'm going to come back to the doctrine of creation briefly later. Now, lest we forget whom, to whom we are to sing, we are to do so again before the Lord. Verse 9. Because He comes to judge the earth. And verse 9 is kind of where we're going to pick up on. Um, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Before the Lord. And the reason we do that is because God comes to judge the earth with righteousness and he judges people with equity. So, in other words, we agree with what Calvin said about this psalm, about this being about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also agree with Isaac Watts uh, that the timing of this psalm is Christmas. So Psalm 98 is a Christmas song. It's a song that we sing at Christmas time, and which, we, by the way, we're okay. We, we may sing it in July. We'll see. It might be really hot, and we'll, we'll just sing it and think of cooler weather. This psalm finds its appointed consummation in the coming of Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin. And we would also confess that in the coming of Christ Jesus, this also has global ramifications. So um, let's, if you can even look there if you want, at the lyrics of Joy to the World. I want to look at those for just a second while you have it in front of you. The song starts like this. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Notice what is being said here. The lyric is, the Lord is come. The Lord is come. And in that coming, we are told, because of his coming, to receive this king. 
the, the funny thing about this song is that it, it gets sung in so many churches, and honestly, so many churches reject the implications of it. This is a song that when you sing it, you are saying something. You, you are confessing something, and the, I, I would say the average evangelical doesn't even know what he's confessing when he says it. Notice that it doesn't say, the Lord will come, um, referring to the second coming of Christ. Nor does it say, the Lord might come. So it doesn't have anything to do with the second coming of Christ, nor does it refer to Christ's alleged future kingdom. Listen, Christmas is the coming of the king. Christmas is the coming of the king. When Jesus Christ was born, the king had arrived. Right, kids? When Jesus was born, the king had arrived. So we are not waiting for Jesus to be king, nor are we waiting for him to start his kingdom. Jesus Christ, born in the manger, is come. So receive your king. More on this later. The song um, continues. um, Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Now, because the Lord is come and because we are told to receive this king, Men must respond to this fact. So no one, no one gets a pass on this command. We are told to prepare him room. We are told to receive. Let earth receive her king. Let Washington, D.C. receive her king. Let, let Virginia receive her king. Let the United States, um, all of Africa, let China receive her king. I think sometimes that we forget what the ramifications are to believing the Christmas story. I think, we, I, I think we forget. We forget sometimes the reality of the truth that we confess. In fact, I would argue that our problem isn't even forgetfulness, but deliberate suppression. Now, we had the passage read earlier from, from John, um, uh, Matthew chapter 2. Think about that story for just a second. When King Herod found out that another king had been born. The text says in Matthew 2 that, quote, he was troubled. He was troubled. Now think about that for a second. The birth of Christ made this intransigent king troubled. In fact, he, he tried to trick the wise men into leading him to this king so that he could deal with his rival governor. So belligerent in his phony lordship was Herod that he had the children in Bethlehem, aged two and under, murdered. Now, think about that for a second. I realize that that passage is a less attractive part of the Christmas story. Here's Herod, threatened by this king, as he should be. Here's a real person in history, completely baffled, beleaguered, and bothered by the birth of Jesus. Here is a little man, most certainly a bramble bush of a man, whose pretended kingdom was about to be severely disrupted. And what does Herod do? He acts upon it. And... (laughs) And so we think our biggest problem at Christmas time is the fact that people say happy holidays to us instead of Merry Christmas. We, we think that's our biggest problem. We have issues. 
that's the extent of our understanding of Christmas. We think that the point of Christmas is, is to make sure that we... Happy holidays. Well, Merry Christmas to you. You know, that, that's what we think. That's, that's where our, the culture war is right now. You know, and, you know, thank the Lord we have a president who gave us permission to say Merry Christmas again. <laughs> but, but what does the Bible say Christmas is all about? That's, that's really what we want to look at. What, what is Christmas all about? Christmas is the celebration of the arrival of the king. But, but what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that Planned Parenthood should be worried. It means that unruly tyrants should be worried, worried and concerned. It means that D.C. should be completely out of their minds concerned. It means that the humanists should be out of sorts. It means that all of the mockery, the pride-induced authoritarians, and everything that exalts itself high above the heavens ought to be warned. Listen, Christmas is a warning shot. Christmas is a warning shot. Christmas is a warning, a threat to those who would oppose Christ. We like to treat Christmas like it's some sort of commercialized, euphoric experience. And don't get me wrong, we should give gifts. We should have beautiful trees decorated. Um, do all of that. We should gather with our families, and we most certainly should, can I get an amen, feast. Amen. Doing this is good and right, and when our hearts are all in for the kingdom of God, this can be done, and it can be done quite well, I might add. But what we must not do is treat Christmas like just another hallmark event. Christmas is far more ferocious than this, far more aggressive than this. The birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was God's reclamation of that which is rightfully His. It's God's reclamation of that which is rightfully His. The world contrary to the opinion of modern evangelicalism, does not belong to Satan. Listen carefully. The world does not belong to Satan. It belongs to God and His Christ. When Adam and Eve decided to break covenant with God, they simultaneously cut a new covenant with Satan. They bought the lie of the serpent, and mankind was thus plunged into sin and darkness. However, the covenant of life that was ruptured wasn't something that God gave up on. God you know, didn't sit there and, well, Adam and Eve did that. Well, now what's the plan? What are we going to do? However, the, the, yes, she, you know, Satan had successfully enthroned himself in the earth in, in a manner of speaking. But the promise of Genesis 3.15 was that the, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Listen carefully. Christmas is that story. Christmas, Jesus coming as king to crush the serpent's head is that story. The birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the current session of Christ is the reclaiming of that. The reclaiming of the land, the reclaiming of what true kingdom is. The light that dawned on Christmas was that repossession of the world from the grip of Satan, sin, and death. Christmas is that story. God winning back what is His. When Jesus was born, He came as a prophet, priest, and king to establish the authority of God on earth. Because the Lord is come, this means that Satan has been disestablished. Christ was and is victorious over the devil. The ruler of this world has been cast out. Jesus says as much. So
So as king, he sits enthroned, ruling history through divine providence. As a priest, he redeems and intervenes for his people who are drawn only by his grace. As prophet, he announced the infiltration plan of the kingdom of God, and he continues to judge the earth with righteousness and equity. This prophet, priest, and king, par excellence, came to force everything into a position of judgment. Listen carefully. The Christmas story is the king coming to force everything into a position of judgment. The arrival of the king was basically the drawing of the line in the sand. When Jesus was born in that run-down stable of a place, born where cows eat their food, that was God drawing a line into the sand. Notice, look at Psalm 98 verse 9 again. We're all, we're all to praise. Why? Before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, this was obviously written before the coming of Christ, but Psalm 98 anticipates the coming of the Lord in a unique way in Israel's history. This coming of the Lord, this coming was the coming of Jesus at Christmas. But, but here's what you won't get in the mail from your friends who send you their great Christmas card, um, their nice family picture. They're not going to say on that picture, Jesus came to judge the world. <laughs> that, that's typically not a message we like to put out there. But Jesus Christ was born to come to the earth to judge the world with righteousness. And you might say, well, that's Old Testament. Why, why are you bringing all that stuff up? The New Testament doesn't say anything about that. How could you possibly suggest that Christmas is about God's judgment? Well, the New Testament does say, say as much. Go ahead and turn with me to the book of John. I want you to see a verse there with your own eyes so you, want, so you see the connection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we'll go to John chapter 3, the famous John chapter 3. And I want you to put your finger on verse 19 there. John chapter 3, verse 19. Here's what it says. And this is the what? Judgment. So, this is the judgment. Keep reading. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, Jesus did not come to condemn the world. And he says as much in John 3, 16 and through 18. Why didn't he come to condemn the world? The world was already condemned. But the judgment that Jesus brought in his coming, that Psalm 98 says, the, the judgment is his coming. He is the light that came into the world. Now, again, we don't normally think of Christmas this way, but we should. The baby Jesus born in the manger is the judgment. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The judgment Christ brought by his coming was the toppling of the powers and principalities. The judgment Christ brought at Christmas and in his life was the toppling of the powers and principalities. His coming was the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus was born, this earth shattered apart. 
When he was born, everything just came undone. The line was drawn in the sand. The warning shot had been fired. The birth of Jesus was, and still is, a threat to the powers and principalities that be. Kings and presidents, prime ministers and self-proclaimed despots ought to fear as Herod feared. Why? Because the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And I love verse 2, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. We don't sing, and I don't know if Lucas could change that on a guitar to make it sound right, but we don't say, joy to the earth, the Savior's going to reign you know, sometime in the future. I don't, you have to add a few chords to that one probably. We can change it. <laughs> joy comes to the world because the light has come. Joy can happen because the Lord is come. Joy can happen because the Savior reigns. Not will reign, but reigns right now. But I'm getting a little too far ahead of myself. One of the things that we must keep in mind as it pertains to the fact that the Lord is come, which again is what Christmas is all about, is the fact that the birth of Jesus means, listen carefully, the birth of Jesus means the restoration of our calling and the assurance of victory in history. The birth of Jesus means the restoration of our calling as followers of Jesus and the assurance of victory in history. And I'm going to talk more about that next week, but I do want to say a few things tonight. Psalm 98 assumes a healthy doctrine of creation. It assumes a healthy understanding of not just a doctrine of God's creative sovereignty, but also a healthy understanding of our calling in this world. Psalm 98 presupposes that God is the sovereign creator of the world, which is why the rivers are told to clap. Because you know what? God can do that. He can make rivers clap. It also presupposes the role of man in creation as God's vice regents. Since we are priests and kings, okay kids, do you understand that? We are priests and we are kings. So own that early on. Since we are priests and kings, and since the dominion covenant was never rescinded, we need to keep in mind that God's people are called to a life of culture building. God's people are called to a life of culture building. So when you, like, a couple weeks from now, you're going to open up presents, and it's going to be a a great time of celebration and family and friends and food. Um, Fantastic lineup of Fs there. Um, You have the opportunity to keep something in mind. You have the opportunity to keep in mind that you are called to participate in Christmas and not just in the gift giving and not just in the food, but you are called with your life to participate in this. And since we're called to this um, culture building thing, (laughs) that's one of the reasons why we're currently being railroaded by the humanists, because we don't see it that way. We don't see it this way. Christmas is the restoration of our calling. Yes, it's a warning shot to unruly tyrants. It's the toppling of the powers that be. But but it also is the restoration of our calling. We are told to rejoice in the Lord, to praise Him, to employ songs and celebration of Him. And part of our praising Him consists in obeying His commands. Don't forget that Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And the carrying out of his law word in every area of life. 
when a person repents of his sins, and, and when he repents of his sins, he comes underneath the authority of Christ in everything. He, he no longer has the obligation to obey his lusts. He's not obligated to obey everything that his sinful heart wants. When the Spirit changes your heart, you are no longer to give yourself to sin. Instead, you are to consider yourself dead to sin, which means that we are no longer condemned by the law, but brought to life by grace to obey the law. Said another way, we have been restored to a position of covenant keeping. So now that, now that we are freed up in Christ to obey God, and the Spirit has filled us so that we can actually do that, we now find ourselves out of the domain of slothfulness and into the realm of diligent work. Before Adam and Eve embraced the lie, they were told to work and keep the garden. They were told to create culture, to be entrepreneurial priests who make things like electric cars and iPhones and espresso machines. Um, now, I bring this up because we're told in this psalm to sing praises to God, to rejoice, to, to, to um, employ songs, to grab an instrument and play it to the glory of God. But oftentimes, we divorce all of that from our vocation and calling. So we, we typically think of worship in terms of singing in church, which is basically a, trun a truncated version of that. No, worship is the giving of our lives in service to God. Worship is giving our lives in service to God. And part of that service, part of that worship, part of that employing of our songs and rejoicing in God and, and, and believing on Christ's promises and so forth, part of that service is our labor and work in the Lord. The Lord is come. Get to work. The Lord has come, and He makes His blessings flow far as the curse is found. So what must we do? We make a joyful noise. Let the rivers clap. Employ songs. Make things. Be about Christ's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And creation itself is a choir that sings about the glory of God. Creation is a choir that sings about the glory of God. And man is part of that creation. Therefore, we are to be about the glory of God in the world. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you know the saying, everybody, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. You've heard of that, right? Well, I've altered that a bit. And here's what I would say. Everyone wants to celebrate Christmas, but nobody wants to be a post-millennialist. More on that next week. Christmas is the celebration of the arrival of King Jesus, and we would do well to act like it is true, to sing like it is true, because guess what it is? It is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered this Lord's Day to magnify your Son's name, to sing boldly and loudly to the world the truths of your Son's Lordship. We are grateful, Father, that you have given us your Son, the true gift of Christmas, that is the gift of infinite value. We pray, Father, that, you would, that we would be a joyful people, a grateful people who are enamored by your glory and spurred on towards love and good deeds. May we remember this Christmas the truth of the fact that the Lord is come. And we ask for your blessings in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.